1854, a man by the name of John McDougall was contracted to bring a team of farm horses across Okanagan Lake for several days of labor. He was to prepare his canoe and rope and swim the horses across a narrow section of water, a common and routine practice at the time. It was a calm and sunny Okanagan day. They set out into the water and had traveled several hundred meters when the horses began to frighten. Then a tug on the rope, jolting the canoe. John spun around and grabbed onto the rope, pulling back to steady himself when he realized the rear horse was being pulled under. In a panic, John reached for his knife and cut the rope, falling back in a state of abject fear as his entire team of horses was violently dragged beneath the surface. Join us tonight for episode two of Into the Portal, where we investigate the encounters, myth, and sightings behind the mysterious monster that lurks in Lake Okanagan, the Ogopogo. Hello, and welcome into the portal, your gateway to the bazaar. I'm your host, Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. Thank you so much to everybody who downloaded episode one on the Lost Army of Cambyses. If you haven't had a chance to check out that episode, go back into iTunes or Google Play or whatever you use. And uh, if you're digging the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. Mm-hmm. Those five stars mean a lot. Definitely. I just have a few quick things to clear up right off the top. I wanted to mention this right away because it was kind of hilarious. I referred to our show as Portal, not Into the Portal, when I did my introduction in episode one. We're still debating whether or not we wanted to run with Portal or Into the Portal. So, you know, right. we've definitely decided on the latter. <laughs> right. So, so we are called Into the Portal. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to clear that up. But um, other than that, there's not really anything to clear up. We're on everything now. We're up on we Google are. Music, iTunes, and Podcast Addict and all of that Indeed. stuff. As so, well. You can check out our website. We do have our first blog entry uploaded as well as our show notes Mm -hmm. for episode one. Yeah. So if you're interested in some of the, uh, not just the show notes, but the resources we looked into Mm -hmm. for that first episode. Links for everything. They're all up there. So there's additional reading as well. If you want to check out some like, you know, more denser material. (laughs) Definitely. All right. That's enough of that. Let's get into this because this is, I've been looking forward to this all week. (laughs) It's been a big build up. And uh, it's just a sweet story. So let's get right into it. It's a hometown legend for us. So, you know, we've grown up with this. It's been around for our entire life. So, yeah, it's weird, right? Like we, we, you know, we've heard the story about the Ogopogo and we'll get into the actual term for that creature. And Ogopogo came along a lot later. Mm. That's sort of a European add on for sure. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, it's weird growing up in the area and always hearing about it, but never really looking into the actual facts behind it, the sightings, the myth, the encounters. So this has been really fun for us. Definitely. So let's get right into it then. Let's start with, um, we're going to go over a little bit. We want to give a little bit of context here for the, mm-hmm. for the legend and things like that. So we'll go into, let's, let's talk a little bit about the background of the area, I guess. Yeah. Um, the, the Okanagan peoples. So mm-hmm. some of these words are really hard to pronounce for us. We're going to try our best. <laughs> that was an issue in the we're first episode too, them. but um, we, and we apologize for that. We, we will try our best. Um, but the Okanagan peoples, uh, the Silks peoples is, is I believe the correct pronunciation of that. 
they have a very rich history in the region. So they've been around, the, the Okanagan peoples, it's estimated that at the height of the Okanagan culture in the area, it was about 3,000 years ago. Around 12,000 people was the estimated population. And that territory ranged through down into what is now Washington, across the border and basically along the Columbia River and its tributaries and other lakes and things like that in the uh, in the area that runs all the way up through into BC where we are in Kelowna and uh, Vernon, Penticton, all those other cities on Lake Okanagan. So, but uh, the the like we said before, the Ogopogo that's that's not the name. It's actually no. pronounced Nahatik. Nahatik. I have seen another spelling that almost makes it seem as if it's pronounced Nahataka. Okay. Yeah, it's N A I T A T K A. So I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> right. But that's the that's the indigenous word for it, and it's basically translates as lake demon. It does. And the, it's a sacred. It was a you know a sacred creature. Mm-hmm. Like over the they years, they revered it. They respected it. And they, at every point, um, when they crossed near Squally Point, right. that is, they would give a live offering to this lake demon and we're, we're going to get into where squally point is and how the, mm-hmm. that fits into the legend and it's sort of been known as the potential home of the ogopogo uh, but we'll get into that in yes. a little bit so first off um do you want to get into mm-hmm. some of the details on the lake or actually let's let's go through the origin story because that's fascinating the origin story of the legend i think that's right. important to cover here um so off the bat um we <laughs> just want to disclose that we we're in contact with a local museum that specializes in this type of history, the Okanagan Peoples. Um, we haven't yet have a chance to visit their museum. We are definitely going to be visiting next week, though. Th- mm-hmm. There will be some additional content, some stuff to look into. Um, we yeah. couldn't wait. We were too excited to we do were, this episode, yes. so we just kind Scheduling of Scheduling purposes, we're getting this going tonight. Definitely. <laughs> anyways, so just look forward to some more content in mm-hmm. the next week or so. But um, the source I managed to find, um, it was from a a paranormal researcher organization called Exploring the Unexplained. Okay. I have a quote from them here, um, specific to the Ogopogo. All right, and I'll read it out to you. So, quote, The legend of the Ogopogo starts with a demon-possessed native man named Kaloniwan, who murdered a well-known and respected elder named Old Kanikan with a war club. As punishment for his crime, the creator changed Kaloniwan into a lake serpent, a creature who would forever be imprisoned at the scene of his crime to suffer eternal remorse. He was left in the custody of a beautiful lake goddess. Kaloniwan was from that day known as Nahatik, the remorseful one who must live in the lake in the company of other animals. It is said that the only animal who could tolerate his company was the rattlesnake. To honor the memory of old Kanikan, the people named the lake Okanagan. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, a little quote there. And we don't, hundred. We, we still have to look into the background of that, but I've yes. definitely come across some things that were, that would lend to that being true mm-hmm. as an origin story. They, I mean, we watched a few documentaries too, where they talk about the origin. They don't go into too much detail, but, no. and we're going to get into some of those documentaries in a little there bit. There was a really good quote though. Yeah. From, go uh, for that one right now. Cause... Yeah. Yeah. I definitely wanted to include that just off the bat here. This was from Ursula Searchy's um, Kelowna Museum director, and this is a part of the In Search of documentary that is hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Spock. (laughs) Really cool. We were pretty stoked when we saw that, and we've been basically chain-watching In Search of since. Pretty much. And we would highly recommend it. (laughs) Yeah. It'll be up on our YouTube channel. Definitely. um... We're going to have links up there. 
so you can check out that playlist um and we're gonna have more up in the future because it's 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 a phenomenal resource it's pretty fun it's so retro dude. It's, it's super just, retro super oh, the retro. quality of the film is just but anyway get to that quote because yeah, it's really sorry cool. we're getting off topic already all right so ursula searchies colonial museum director quote we have learned indian legends have a very substantial amount of fact and truth to them right end quote and this was back in the 60s. It was, yes, when she made this statement. And I think it just lends a lot of legitimacy to the Okanagan people's perspective Definitely. on their surroundings. And yeah, it just, I don't know. I mean, all these things are being I passed down very... with, it's profound. I think it's exactly. profound. It's, uh, you mm-hmm. know, these stories and legends and things are passed down through oral tradition. And of course, they'll inevitably pick up different sort of things along the way. But this was this mm-hmm. is a story for the Okanagan peoples that's that's really important to them. It is, and it was it's almost like the Ogopogo is you know it, it's it's a representative of the lake and sort of the relationship with water. And we'll mm-hmm. get back into that and the a little importance bit too. Of it and just, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's really yeah that's 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 a great quote to kind of leave I feel things like off here. In a sense, you could almost interpret it as a metaphor for respect for nature. And the changeability of the lake itself, right? Because right. if I read on a little further into this original quote I had, I didn't want to read the whole thing because it's kind of long. Yeah. But uh, basically, yeah, what it says here is the fee for a safe patch- passage was a live sacrifice. Whenever the natives who lived around the lake would venture out on the water, they would sacrifice a small animal to appease the monster. Mm. They would drop into the lake. It would drown. This ensured a protected journey. It was told that the shore of Rattlesnake Island was littered with the goy remnants of the travelers who did not make a sacrifice. <laughs> so Nahatik would use his mighty tail to whip up the lake's water into a fierce storm that would drown its victims. The white settlers also followed the native warnings, yet the white man also lapsed at times and had to be reminded of the monster's wrath. Interesting. Which, you know, our intro did definitely demonstrate an example of that, I feel. Very much in so. In a very dramatic way. Indeed. But I feel like that, you know, like, it's not as if this um, this monster is coming up and snatching people from their boats and no. dragging them into the, well, in the case of the... In that particular story. Exactly. Dropping, but I feel like it's more, there. it's a little more allegorical. It's a little looser, right? Like, and I, we've experienced it right growing up in the Okanagan, the changeability of the water itself and the it wind It can get pretty intense out there. I mean, we're in a va- the Okanagan Lake is in a valley and it's it's a fairly narrow valley. It mm-hmm. gets pretty intense windstorms. It does. And that can definitely whip things up on the water and it's a dangerous place to be. So I definitely think a lot of that can be allegorical for sure from other, you know, stories and things To a certain down, extent. To a certain extent. Doesn't but like, actually like account the for the sightings, says, but... <laughs> exactly it doesn't account for a lot of the things that we are definitely going to cover in this episode so let's let's keep going definitely let's... <laughs> yeah. i guess that was another thing from the first episode <laughs> we forgot to cover the physics of sandstorms which i believe i mentioned at the beginning oh, yes. so maybe we'll post something i think we'll we have something we did posted have a, source, uh, for that, yeah. a source posted about that anyway we're already getting off track okay so Let's go for, let's get into a little bit about the lake itself. Well, yeah, just to give another, yeah, some just more to give context. Some context. Because this Okanagan Lake is, it's pretty unique. It's one of the oldest and deepest lakes in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of lakes in Canada, so that's... It is a glacially pretty, formed lake. Uh, which is the reason carved why. Carved out by repeated glaciations. Exactly. So it's also a, it, prone to um, volcanic activity. There's a, quite a few, vol- well, in, dor- more dor- extinct now. Extinct but, volcanoes you know, in the back area. Back in the day. <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> but yeah, old, one of the oldest and deepest in Canada. It's around 90 kilometers long. Um, I've heard estimates up to 112. Yeah, varying lengths. Does vary. So, but I mean, 45 kilometers wide. There's, you know, there's three major cities that are 
of British Columbia that are all along this lake. We've got Penticton and then Kelowna in the middle and then Vernon up mm-hmm. at the north end. Penticton and Vernon are a little smaller, but I mean, still decent size. I mean, it's a, it's a big lake. Yeah. It's a big lake. You know, four to five kilometers wide, depending on the location, and at least 800 feet deep. There are people that dispute how deep this is. Um, it's some never actually say been mapped. It, it hasn't been fully mapped. There's been some some seismic mapping and that we actually um, we spoke to a geologist and we'll have yes. her uh, as a guest later in in this episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, she said that it hasn't been necessarily fully fully mapped. There's just been some sort of basic seismic mapping, but up to a thousand feet, some people say, and then mm-hmm. beneath that, so you got a thousand feet from the surface to the sediment on the bottom of the deepest parts of the lake. Then you've got 750 meters of sediment before you hit bedrock so in this some is places. in some places this, is, this not... is not everywhere in the lake no but this is in some of these deeper sections of the water and that's that's just kind of crazy i just wanted to throw that out there so just for, for perspective on that the tallest building in the world i think as, as of 2016 is the burj khalifa in dubai so it's 600 meters or 2,000 feet so Add another 450 feet of sediment plus a thousand feet potential of water, and then you're at the surface of Okanagan Lake. So over 3,200 feet. So that's that's crazy. And the sediment is organic material, inorganic material, and it is from the glacial periods. Right, that, right. You get a lot of that sort of loose material. Totally. And yeah. And there's some interesting theories on the sediment and things Definitely, like that. Definitely, that we'll, yeah, it's yeah. a part of uh, the theory section of this episode. Which is what the bulk of this episode is, really, because it's a lake monster that we are searching for, that people have been looking for for a long time, and uh, (laughs) there's some bizarre stories about it, and then there's ones that are a lot more credible, Mm -hmm. and uh, we've handpicked the ones that we think are the most profound, and that kind of As far as sightings. As far as sightings, and then... There's a few expeditions we'll mention later on as well. Indeed. Well, what what, uh, what are we getting into here, then? Well, I think we should start at the start. Start at the start. Start at the start. (laughs) That's a good place to start. It is. (laughs) All right. So that would be in the 1800s then. Um, And this is one of the earliest pioneer accounts um, by a woman named Susan Allison. So this this Susan Allison, um, she was a BC pioneer and she was an author. And she reportedly saw the beast uh, near her home, which is now um, the property of Quailsgate Winery in West Kelowna. Yeah. Very fascinating. It she was actually great. the first white person in the Okanagan, I believe. She was the first, like, permanent settler on the West Side. Yeah. She was the first non-Indigenous, her and her husband. And then they started a family here. Mm-hmm. Like, her full name was Susan Louisa Moore Allison. Uh, so she was originally from England, relocated to Hope, BC, and then eventually made her way out to the Okanagan. She actually established the very first ever school in Hope with her oh, mother. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, she went on to write uh, a couple of books and she had her memoirs that were later published in, in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, Pioneer Gentlewoman. And that was We will the be posting a link to that. Definitely posting a link mm-hmm. to that. It's actually hilarious. We both, Amber and I, covered that book in, in uh, I can't even remember what it was. Um, cultural studies class and and it was, it was one of our favorite profs one of Jan our favorite MacArthur. Profs, but she it was, was uh, it was really dry the book itself and it's so funny coming back to it years later trying to dig out this little piece of evidence that lends to the <laughs> the idea that the ogopogo might actually exist it's kind yeah. of kind of funny full circle for us and Susan so, yeah Allison. her full account well i don't actually have her quote um but essentially yeah she was at her home um called sunnyside ranch mm-hmm. and she describes seeing a snake-like creature uh, closely mirroring the native legend about Nahati. Right. So, yes. And the thing about her is that she 
I mean, it's, yeah, and, and, and that first account is not exactly, it doesn't jump out at you. Like, some crazy story about seeing someone have horses pulled beneath the surface like John McDougall's story. But what's profound to me about Susan Allison's account is that after reading that book, you know, it sort of reminds me a little bit of some of the things in, in the Herodotus in episode one where she writes really, dry, she's very dry about most things, right? Yeah. So it, it and, and including the account of Ogopogo. So it's just like, there's no yeah, embellishment. No, not a lot of colorful language. Not a lot of, yeah, there's, there's no embellishment. <laughs> there's no jazzing it up. So it seems strange. Like, why would you say that if you didn't actually see what mm. you thought you saw? And of course, she may have been mistaken, but she was privy to the legend from the people she met and lived amongst in the Okanagan. And I think she's a credible witness. I think she is too. So that's a kind of a cool first account for sure. Definitely. So that was 1873, right? Yeah. 1873. That's the date I have. And then we're moving on to, I mean, here's the thing with this story. This is, we'll come back to some other points, but like, it's the most photographed lake monster in the world, supposedly. Yeah. It's one of the... Even though a lot of them just look like waves. A lot of them look just like, a lot of them are just waves. (laughs) I'm going to say that right now, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) Um, no way to tell. But there's a million... Every year, there's hundreds of sightings. Hundreds of sightings every single year. Not all of them are reported, obviously. Some of them just get floated out. There's stories. But we've handpicked just a few. Because if we yeah. were going to go through all of the... Even the compelling ones... All night. This would be like a 15-part episode. It would be. So we're trying to make it a one-part episode. <laughs> um, so next... I would say that the next one would be just a quick mention. Um, I believe it was... 1914, 1915, perhaps. I don't have the date in front of me right now. It was 1914. I remember you brought this up. 1914. 1914. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and that was the um, yeah the Okanagan peoples, and I believe the Kootenai peoples. It, it was a, a joint um, group expedition, but they were traveling alongside the lake shore near Beachland, mm-hmm. and they happened upon a a carcass that was about. It was a dark grayish blue, and it was about five to six feet long with small flippers. And they didn't know what to make of it. This is bizarre. It almost like the description kind of like brings to mind a dolphin to me. Yeah, or like a it manatee is quite small, or something. Or like... But they kind of interpret it as a baby Ogopogo. Mm-hmm. Because the creature we're talking about um, has been reported to, in, I think it's between 20 to 50 meters. Or sorry, feet. Yeah, 50. Six, feet. Up to 60, up to 60 <laughs> be... feet in the in the up fold to 60. film. Yeah, okay. I believe. Okay. Which is massive, obviously. So that's obviously a lot bigger so than what very... they found, yeah. but... At the same time, you think they'd know if they were looking at a big old salmon or tuna or something. Or, obviously, you know? yeah, which obviously wouldn't be here a tuna, but like something like that. Like though, something. You have to wonder. I mean, that was before the damming of the lake, right? So, you know, could have been some sort of tributary that was a large enough, you know, waterway that something strange from somewhere else got in. I, the Okanagan Lake used to be connected to the Columbia. I'm fairly certain mm-hmm. up in the Arrow Lakes area before a dam was put in in the 50s. And that's a point that was mentioned in one of the doc- later documentaries that we referenced in this episode. But yeah, that's a weird find. It is. Because... And from the, um, like, Okanagan natives, like, you know, they would probably have the most experience. Well, obviously they of do. Of course. Been here the longest and, you know, they live... Like... Avid hunters and know the area well, exactly, and all yeah. that stuff. Connected to the land. I mean, of course, yeah, I mean, 1914, it seems odd that somebody would... That it could have been an animal transported from somewhere else or just some mm. weird... Someone's coincidence pet that got loose. or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> your know. sea monkey that grew to be seven feet long and died on the beach. No, that's <laughs> weird. Sea but the uh the flippers thing doesn't match up with basically mm. most of the other sightings yeah. and things like most that. Most of the sightings are when it's like partially submerged though. Very so true. the fins could be below water. Very true. 
Yeah. Potentially. <laughs> so, moving on. Next sighting. Yeah, so a few years later, 1928, the Mission Beach sighting. Now, this is one of the better known ones. It, it is. is. It involved 30 plus cars. It basically... Tons of witnesses. It had the most witnesses out of any of the sightings that we mm-hmm. researched, that we looked at. So yeah, 30 plus cars. And I'm thinking 30 plus cars, that's got to be presumably... At least two people per car. And you'd think. I mean, Probably I'm, more. I'm if they're at the cons- beach, everyone's piling in the car, going you'd down. Think. I mean, who's there's going probably to people the... in the trunk, you know? <laughs> it's like the... sneaking into the drive-in. Yeah, there's probably not too many lonely people going to the beach by themselves that day, I would imagine. <laughs> so like conservatively, I'm thinking 45, 50 people. Yeah. Saw this, saw, saw, uh, and it book. was a prolonged sighting, too. It wasn't just a brief little, what was that? And yeah, it was that's gone. right. How long did this? It, it was a few minutes. Like, that was all I heard. Like five, six I couldn't minutes actually or confirm the, yeah. Which doesn't sound like a lot of time, but in reality, that's a really long is, time. Yeah. That's a really long time. And basically, what people saw was there wasn't an exact reference as to how many feet out from the beach it was mm-hmm. that I could find. But, but it, it was, was by a dock, wasn't it? They had a frame, yeah, they had a reference point yeah. at least. Like, they could, they could. It was close enough that they were like, what the heck are we looking at? They didn't need binoculars. No, they didn't need binoculars. And they basically saw what a lot of other people would end up seeing throughout the years, which was, I believe, three humps. So it it, it, uh, surfaced. I don't think there was a head seen, but Mm -hmm. what was seen was the body uh, traveling. And and it just looked really weird. Weird enough for that many people to watch and then have people stop because people were watching. Yeah. So... That's kind of crazy. I think that's kind of crazy, too. I mean, what do you make of that account? Like, were they all drunk? I mean, obviously, I mean, <laughs> were they... you're chilling at the beach, you might be having a few pops, but... Like, how hot was it that day? Is Are we seeing mirages in the water? Like, what's going on? Yeah, it couldn't have been. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we hang out at the beach and What if we're... it's a bunch of salmon, though? What if they're splashing all around and getting crazy and... Splashing all around and getting I crazy. I don't know. Definitely not. I mean, people aren't going to mistake that. It's 1928. We don't have any footage. No, unfortunately, we don't no. have footage. But I'm thinking people... Yeah, I don't know. It, it's a tough one when you have a mass sighting. It's like on the Was one hand... Was it one person making a mountain of a molehill and they were just directing the and then it's entire sort of, crowd? And then it, yeah, and then it kind of gets all, you know, people get into sort of the... Yeah, it's a crowd atmosphere and it's like, what the heck? And it's just this sort of... What is that? Hey, mob mentality. And it's just actually a log out in the water or something, right? Like some couple beavers. And that's totally a possibility. But that that's we don't want to discredit them. No, we do want to mention every possibility at the same time. Definitely, it's tough to discredit this one because you you just it's tough to credit it and it's tough to discredit it. It's kind of just a. It's not enough. It is what it is. None of these people are alive anymore, probably. You know, it's a funny note, though. Um, In uh, two years before this, actually, because there's been sightings, like, forever there's been sightings. And uh, I don't know if this was just completely a joke or if some people were serious about this. But in 1926, this is an art, um, just a snippet from the Daily Colonist. Mm -hmm. Um, 1926, the city of Kelowna uh, announces a new ferry that would be monster proof. (laughs) So. (laughs) Do you actually have that clipping? I have a link. We will. yeah i have a link it's totally free yeah it's totally public access um so we'll have a link for that and there's a bunch of really awesome newspaper snippets on the oh my god it's hilarious it's really funny some of them are more serious column well well, some of them are more serious in general yeah yeah back in the day it's like and then it's weird because we were searching through these obviously because we want some primary sources Mm -hmm. but we did find ogopogo 
like sightings in other lakes too yeah and that to me is and other creatures too that are also like no. sightings in freshwater like champ and Lake so, Champlain so and... maybe that kind of lends to the idea that there are these sort of cryptid things that can exist sort of below human conscious level mm-hmm. and maybe are living in these streams and th- like you know like that was maybe well, that fed into Okanagan Lake and now Augie's down here well like, you never know. I don't know and that's the idea of tunnels and 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 deep caves in the lake is something that is definitely that is part theory. of that theory and we will get to that in just a sec because that's my favorite part so of the so that was story. 1928 at Mission Beach there's obviously been a lot um of sightings in between this and the next one we'll mention yeah. but we think that this is definitely a pivotal pivotal part of the Ogopogo mystery yeah. we skipped 40 years here because yeah there just <laughs> wasn't enough that it, it, there wasn't really the, enough within that 40 years that was that compelling in terms of evidence it was just that we could more find. anecdotal stories yeah. right and a lot of those came from the in search of that we watched about Ogopogo and they were that is a very illuminating um piece on just Kelowna culture back in the 60s and 70s right yeah it definitely. was ugh, I don't know. It was just a different time, hey? Totally. With people, people, like, gathering together to tell their stories. Yeah. And it was much more of, like, a... The radio station put out a call for people to gather and tell their stories. And everyone came out. And what is out, out and out... Now... Nah. <laughs> 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 Apparently, I can't talk. What is now um, outside of Earl's called Downtown Kelowna. Yeah, Downtown. Yeah. We could actually recognize. So, like, we could see the back. We were like, what? Yeah, that you, was could the see, dock. you could see it the was old like the, fairy the and dinkiest little dock ever. It was hilarious. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's wild to think that so much has changed since just then. It is. Crazy. So anyway, we skip forty years though. Sorry, yeah. And the fold we, in film. This now the fold in film. This one's important. It really is. This was the basis of the argument for an author named Arlene Gall, who, uh, I, I can't remember where she was from exactly, but she had three books. She came from a different part of the province, but she moved here with her, I think she was from even just Armstrong okay. or something, just further up north. Anyway, and, she wrote yeah. some great books on Ogopogo, mm-hmm. and those are ones that we'll eventually have up in, three our, books. in our bookstore on our website. I think the last one was in 2001. Yeah, so really recent, and she's, and the, the she's first still one was, alive. She's still around, she's, she's in her old, 80s but, now. Yeah. But uh, the Folden film was one of the focal points for her for her research, mm-hmm. and it's because this it was a it, t- yeah taken in nineteen sixty eight by a man named Art Folden, mm-hmm. and I as believe, he and his wife were traveling through Peachland, right, mm-hmm. and they he saw something strange as they were driving. I I think I think they were sort of maybe the story goes that they were they were coming up to the to the shoulder and they were going to maybe pull off and take a little break and he caught something just before that and then they really decided to pull off mm-hmm. and he it's a dis there's a lot of distance yeah like it's quite far away it but, almost looks like the top of Naramata hey, when you go yeah, up that windy road like and then you're looking way down it's high it must have been an old road because it's not the highway we know today. oh no it's yeah it's definitely an older road for sure mm-hmm. but he he caught a he basically caught footage of there was a frame of reference in terms of the distance. So like you can see the, sh- the tree line on the shores mm-hmm. and all, on the shore and stuff like that. So they ended up doing some analysis later on. But basically, you got to go and check out this video. We will uh, also put that on our YouTube channel as well because it's really cool. And basically, it was what they estimated to be a 60 foot long, up, three, to, 60 up to 60 feet. foot long, three foot wide. This is later estimations from footage analysis. Mm-hmm. Creature. Conducted in the 2000s. Surfacing and submerging. Traveling at a good clip. I can't remember the exact estimate Well, it was speed, creating a wake. Creating it. a wake. <laughs> and when you watch this video, it like it was later analyzed and determined that there was no, no tampering with the footage. That there's clearly a solid object 
animate object mm -hmm. that's moving a quickly. A large animate object. And you can clearly tell when it surfaces, and then there's that, there's the front end, and then there was a back hump, mm -hmm. and then it submerges for a little while, and then it would resurface again, but not in a straight line. Kind no. of a little bit off to the side. Mm -hmm. And it was clearly something... Very serpentine. Very serpentine. Mm -hmm. Just clearly something moving very suspiciously. So to... that for her was pivotal, and she actually ended up buying the Folden film right. off of the original owner. Um, and I believe she still has it in her possession today. And yeah. that was how the uh, Monster Quest was able to do their analysis and verify. You can find clips of it, I think, now. Like, oh, it's yeah, been you can. Obviously. It's not like, well, I mean, it, it was featured there. in the documentary, too. True. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just out there. But it's a short mm -hmm. clip, but it is, it's... It's fascinating, really. It kind of makes you never want to swim in the middle of the lake again. For me. Like, <laughs> <I'm not laughs> like, like, like whether it's actually, <laughs> you know, regardless of what it might be, yeah. it's freaky. Freaks me out. Especially according to this next account where the creature was reportedly, this is a quote, two blocks away from shore. <laughs> yeah, two blocks. So this comes from Ed Fletcher. Um, yeah. Yeah. This guy's a trip. I like him a lot. He is, yeah. <laughs> and his first sighting occurred in the 1970s at some point. He's not specific. But he did say that they've seen Augie over 40 times. They named it, eh? They called it Augie. Uh, that's more my nickname. I don't think they call it Augie. I just like to say Augie. It's that's cute. funny. But yeah, anyways, no, yeah, their first it. sighting was um, pretty startling for them, obviously. It was him and his daughter. They were in their little speedboat. And the speedboat is integral to the story, too. So they spotted this creature two blocks from shore, as I said. And it was described by them as having, quote, just one hump, three feet high, and dark colored. So they... So the two of them chased the creature for about uh, one and a half hours. And yeah, apparently he's come up with his own theory though. And that was the um, the boat vibrations theory. Mm -hmm. He believes now that he was actually attracting the monster, which is why he saw him over 40 times or so he claims. Yeah. And that this um, electrolysis effect what, that is actually used in fishing apparently. I'm not even sure, but it's a thing. Um, but yeah, I was apparently just attracted to that. So we claim. So that was actually utilized in further investigations as well. Yeah, that's fascinating because I guess it was like a jet a jet engine on this particular boat. And, and that's the, what gave off it was that frequency. the vibration frequency. Yeah, yeah that it would motor. attract with be within the range to attract marine life. That's wild. That's really crazy. Cool. Eh? Like, well, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's like totally... was he attracting anything else though? That's my question. <laughs> I mean, you think if he dropped a fishing line, he might catch something. If like, that's what were they of... doing out there? Just boating around? Probably, I guess. He obviously became obsessed with this story because he would kind of attempt to. Find Ogopogo. He did. Yeah, he went to um, marine lengths. researchers. He went to an aquarium. He went down further. to he went down to Southern California for yeah. uh, to like uh, an advanced marine research center to see Again, if they could identify the animal. He was describing what he saw, and basically what he saw was he described it as I mean definitely no fins, flippers, no scales, like that. very smooth, dark, smooth like a shark, mm -hmm. like you know yeah, no or an eel or, or an eel or a whale. And he said as well. What's interesting about the footage that he took is that it appears as though there's sort of like a ripple, like maybe of like not fins, but you know, like a a center strip going down its back kind of mm. thing. Mm -hmm. Didn't you notice that when yeah, you actually yeah, yeah, that's zoomed right. in on that's the film? Right, yeah, it was uh, it it was almost eel like. You know, eels have that little sort of like flappy thing on top <laughs> it did no it did seem to be like there was some sort of a pronounced shape a ridging ridging on the top um, perhaps it could have been the waves it could have been the water i don't know well that's the thing that we that that and we'll get back to that theory too yeah because it ties there, there's a few things that 
theories uh, based on wave dynamics and water that sort of tried to debunk Ed Fletcher. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that we thought was really interesting. So we'll come back to that in just yeah. a sec. So but his, few... his photos were, I mean, are you ready to move on to Bill? Oh, well, if you, yeah, no, go for I it. I mean, if for, that's more Ed Fletch. Yeah, I mean, like, for him. I, I, I'm into the Fletch. Yeah, he, he was a, he was just sort of an oddball to me, like, but he, he sounded so sincere. He's a character. He, you know, he Apparently was. he's from Prince George. Really? Yeah. Okay. And he just was, like, vacationing down in the Okanagan. I, he might have been living. I mean, like. I don't know, he might have been a summer resident. Obviously, okay. liked to boat, so. I don't think you do much boating in Prince George. It's comparable to the Okanagan. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'd say. <laughs> no offense to people that live in Prince oh, George. Oh, not at all. Just, <laughs> I've actually never been there. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, his account, I also think is genuine. Like, from watching the footage of him talking mm-hmm. about it. And the fact that they got within as close as they did, like the photos. He was kind he, of obsessed. He was obsessed, but not bit. to the point where it was like going to, I think, cloud his. Not for publicity. No, he wasn't in it I for that. I don't think it was for that. Either. No. I didn't get that impression. But his photos are really, really, I mean, they're they're yeah. definitely in the, t- they're up there with the fold in film in terms of the did most. He, he, so he's copyrighted those or what's going on? I there? mean, I don't even think Ed Fletcher's, I mean, he may not even well, still okay, be wait, around. Okay, wait, so this knows? is the 70s. And it's now 2018. Well, who knows how old this We're guy was. We're on the brink of it being public domain anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. Like 50 I mean, years and it's just... No, it's out there. You Google it. Ed Fletcher. You um, can definitely find uh, it. Ogopogo photos. It's on Google. We and found they, it. And you know, if you, if you have a well, chance to... find it, you can definitely find it. Yeah. And if you've got a chance to blow it up and look at it, it's it's really neat. But yeah, if you watch the And it is featured in some of the documentaries that we have listed on our YouTube. So... Mm-hmm. You can just go ahead and check those out and you'll find it all. Definitely. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the next sighting. We've got a couple more to cover. Um, this guy in particular, Bill Stikuik, I wanted to mention. Hope I'm saying his last name right. Sorry, Bill, if I'm not. Um, he's a local <laughs> Legend Hunters. Um, and he, yeah, so it's an organization called the Legend Hunters. And they have a website called uh, ogopogoquest.com. And apparently his first sighting happened in 1978 when he was crossing the bridge from the west side to um, Kelowna. So apparently he caught a movement in the lake and he stopped his car in the middle of the bridge. (laughs) So all the traffic behind him also stopped. I'm not sure if they did that because they had to stop or because they wanted to. I didn't make that (laughs) distinction. I don't know. In front of everybody. eh? But apparently he was soon joined at the rail by about 20 other people. So yeah. Um, What they saw was a head with three black humps protruding about 60 meters away. So they watched it swim for about nearly a minute. And then after that, it disappeared beneath the water surface, leaving a sub- substantial lake. Wow. Yeah. And that's another, obviously, mass sighting. And that... that yeah, so that's that... 20 plus people. And he became an avid believer after that. Yeah. He founded this website. He actually has had two expeditions into the lake, which we will cover in a bit. We're just going chronologically here. That that encounter, you know, matches up with Ed Fletcher, too, in terms of the skin. The dark, it does. dark smooth. It, the dark, smooth, yeah. Uh, so there's some... He saw three black humps. Ed Fletch only saw one, but, right. you know, it but might have know, just... I mean, just you just saw a part of it. Right? I don't... Okay, so are these actual, like, like U-shaped humps with the whole thing coming out? Or is it just, like, a little bit of a hump coming out? Well, I mean, if it, if, it, if what they saw like, was like... Like, the statues light... are obviously really, like, that we well, see... Well, it's a cartoon. Exactly, I mean, right? So that's pronounced. exaggerated. Of course. But... I think if it was anything like the photos from... The Ed Fletcher photos, it's it's not as pronounced like that because like the movement is it up and down in the water is it side to side right like if it's side to side i'm i'm picturing an eel more so than like a like a pleosaur yeah the the way it moves definitely would lead to whether or not would would determine whether or not it's exposed to the like above the surface or can i just do both it's like ambidextrousness for 
marine life? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're not marine biologists, just in case anybody out there didn't know already. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, definitely some odd similarities, though, with that mm-hmm. account. Pokeball request. Check it out. He's got it's t-shirts a great for sale. Website. They look like a lovely family. They're, yeah. <laughs> the t-shirts are pretty funny. But yeah. no, he did some great research. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good resource for, for looking into this for sure. Yeah. So that's Ed. And so that concludes okay. the 1970s. We're going to jump into the 2000s now. Yeah, we're going to jump into the 2000s. And this account... I feel like this one is just cool. Because even though it is a single person that witnessed it, like this is like freaky to me because he saw it not once but twice and he saw more than one creature so, more than one and that's something that will so that lends to the idea that maybe there's a population that's something that we ran into a lot and we did see that in some of the footage um dan barasada i think his last name was or basarada or i don't know i'm okay. probably getting that wrong but he posted two sightings remember there was one in it was like august 14th 2001 and the next year was like 2002 the exact same day and i was confused about oh, that yeah, initially i was like is right. this a typo like what's going on here yeah. but what he actually has footage of it almost looks like three creatures or at least two yeah so anyways there's that idea mm-hmm. all right so daryl ellis this guy he is a marathon swimmer um his sighting was recorded in 2000 so while he was um competing actually i'm not sure if he was in he was training marathon. i think he was, was he? training okay. yeah so he reported being accompanied. It wasn't accompanied. the Iron Man or anything like that. Okay. Yeah. Or it wasn't his birthday, was it? Was he the guy that swam the lake for his birthday? His I think 50th? that was a different guy. Was it? Okay. Anyway, but we know we know he was a marathon swimmer for sure. Yeah. Anyway, so it was Daryl. Daryl Ellis, he reported being accompanied for a short distance during his swim by two large creatures as he passed Rattlesnake Island, also known as Squally Point. Um, so he described them as being um, six to nine meters. So that's about 20 to 30 feet. And the second one was a bit smaller than that. So they followed him for quite a while and then disappeared. So they're peaceful, at least. And then while he was swimming near the Okanagan Lake floating bridge, <laughs> when we still had the floating bridge. <laughs> yeah, way back in the day. Um, a creature with a large eye the size of a grapefruit came within nine meters to get a close look at him. Oh my god. That would, that would be that terrifying. Would, yeah. And I, mean, I actually saw, this was from the Legend Hunters website, which is Bill Stichuik's website, mm-hmm. and he had an artist rendition of what um, Daryl Ellis saw, and it, it it's a beautiful portrait. I I thought it was more uh, peaceful and demure as opposed to scary. Like, you know, it wasn't frightening at it's all. It's not, but... like, outright scary, but it's also a A lot of people bit... do refer to the Oak Bogo as the friendly monster, right? It's definitely He definitely known isn't known as... for dragging people down. No, unless it's you're, been, it's you know, been, yeah, John I mean... McDougal. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if, but you he that to story, if you believe that story to be I feel true. Like he just, wow. Anyways, you never know. <laughs> but it's definitely been obviously blown up into a, just a tourist trap. Mm-hmm. And uh, that takes away from the actual legend and, and the possibility of there, it, that, that legend being based off of an actual. Some sort of. An actual creature. Of in some fact. sort or something that is unknown. But that's where we come extinct. in. We're trying to kind of like br- just bridge we're, somewhere in yeah, between. We're asking questions. And, we're... Yeah, we want to ask questions and just sort of, yeah perpetuate the conversation but still have some fun and yeah. i mean yeah like we said last time we're fox maulers so we want to believe <laughs> we do i want the ogopoga to be real i want to believe and swimming. i never <laughs> want to swim in that lake ever again <laughs> yeah. i'm already terrified of you it don't anyway. even like swimming anyway honestly i was i when i was young i had terrible experiences with water and i just 
I've just been yeah, scarred so the, for so, life. So the Ogopogo doesn't help. People don't want me to swim in water. They're mean. <laughs> they leave me in the middle of lakes with nothing but myself. And I look down and there's just black water. And I don't and even know how. And you see a serpent. It's like, it's like literally like you're hovering over a massive abyss. Nobody likes that. you don't know Nobody what's likes underneath. That. And that is crazy. That's terrifying to me too. That's my worst nightmare. Totally. Anyways, I'm already, I'm getting a heart attack to leave on. So. I mean, yeah, that account is scary though, Daryl. Isn't else. it? It's like. He, and he this said is in, twice in well, one he said swim. in that account too, like they 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 seem peaceful. It's just observing him, but yeah. he he wrote like he said I I booked it. Like mm-hmm. he was he was scared and he turned up the speed. <laughs> like he, he got he went into another gear like to get going because he was like I'm not gonna just be swimming leisurely with these strange black creatures following me. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, yeah. So. What are we moving on to now? I mean, I think we've got... So we've got pretty much... We've got the main stories we wanted to cover. Those were the most profound ones that we came across. Definitely, if you have your own, though, share them with us. We'd love to hear it. Yeah, reach out and let us know. Maybe you can get featured in an upcoming mini-sode or something else. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to get into... We watched a couple of docs on the Mm Ogopogo, and they were totally different. Two totally different styles, different eras, for sure. Hmm. And we're just going to get into a little bit of the details on that. and uh, yeah. As well as the expedition launch, launched by the Legend Hunters. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of important. Okay, well, what would you, you want to get into that? Let's do that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's... so this is actually kind of cool. It's a good segue from the last story because this expedition took place in 2000 as well. So basically, yeah, this was put on by Bill Stikuik and his team at the local, local Legend Hunters. And essentially, they used sonar technology, um, and they searched the area around Squally Point. So, it was actually kind of cool. They did discover on the 18th day um, something very big and rapidly approaching um, that they picked up on their sonar. It had about a 35-second um, sweep time, so you get the delay, right? So, they see this right. big object, is, it's moving towards them, Yeah. and then they see it, it was apparently estimated to be 15 meters long and it was at the time that they picked it up on the radar it was 48 meters in front of the boat at a depth of about seven and a half meters so anyways <laughs> they had to wait this 35 seconds for the sweep could yeah. you imagine you're on the boat there's this <laughs> large thing coming towards you you're, you're like, like uh... is this it <laughs> like, I'm not sure. yeah anyways so yeah in, in that time the creature like object moved five degrees to the port and then half a minute later it dropped below the so that was encouraging for them. They I mean, actually that's, did. That's real evidence of something. It's it's yeah. It's I mean, actually like measurable. And obviously, you don't know what that was, but if it's that big, fifteen meters long, like nothing in the lake that we know of is fifteen meters long. So, and it's not a freaking log, man. Logs don't move that fast. <laughs> An underwater log just propelling. Is there itself like a jet stream under the water logs. that's just? Yeah, Anyways, no. I don't think so. So that was encouraging for them. They did launch another expedition the following summer with inconclusive results. They searched um, Squally Point as well, as well as the area three kilometers north of Kelowna and Seclusion Bay. But again, nothing. Hmm. Yeah. So that was that. Um, then we had the docks, right? So there was the two we have already mentioned the in search of a couple times. Did you have any other things you want to add to that? Or No, not really. That was okay. sort of it but for that. Yeah. It was... Uh... This is so fast. I love it. I just, I want to go back and watch it again right now. (laughs) (laughs) Now we can watch it again later. Yep. But the other one then, the second doc, Monster Quest. Yeah. So that was from 2009. And Monster Quest is a fun series. It's fun. It's fun. 
it's kind of sensationalist. It's a definitely sensationalist. Um, they don't really. There's not a lot of substance. There's definitely some yeah, questionability of their <laughs> tactics. And yeah, methods, I mean, they but... do the classic where it's like they send their diver down and they make it sound as if he's hundreds of feet I... down, but he's really only like 30 feet down. And then, then they lose the they connection. They lose connection to, and yeah. then they cut no to commercial. No communication, yeah. And then when you come back from commercial, I feel oh yeah, like, I'm good. I'm you know, fine. shows like that are plagued by television formats to a certain extent right because you need the hook you need that because you know you're gonna have commercial yeah the hook these days isn't just the idea that you might find a sea monster people need some certain death or something people need all these all these things to entertain them yeah i guess those people won't be listening to our podcast probably (laughs) and that's okay i guess that's fine but anyways monster quest yeah they did definitely note that um the Okanagan Lake is one of the largest, oldest, and deepest glacial lakes in North America, mm-hmm. and that this monster in particular has been the most sighted and documented lake beast in the world. And their expedition used thermal imaging techniques and electrolysis, the same technology that Ed Fletch claimed attracted the beast. So, yeah, they actually had some cool claims, or discoveries, I would say. Not claims, but mm-hmm. you can see it in the footage. Did you write those down, or do you... For, well, they, they... Well, I got really excited when they found the uh sorry we're still on monster quest here right yeah oh yeah <laughs> i'm still like when they found what they thought was a little oh a dead infant ogopogo infant yeah it looked so convincing and it looked really weird it was it like did. it was not like anything i'd ever seen in you know in a freshwater lake it looked yeah. like an eel like thing it really did without any fins or without anything and of course they you know they retrieved it and they sent it back for analysis and it turned out to just be a decomposed salmon yeah. Which was sort of unfortunate. But <laughs> it just goes to show, though, how easily things can sort of get misinterpreted mm. in the field. Right. But, I mean... And they were so pumped on it, too. They grabbed it, and then they went right back up to the surface. They didn't even bother continuing no, with no, it. No, no, no. That was it. They were like, <laughs> Isn't that we found it. We got it. <laughs> we're <What>? done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so they actually, in their dive, they did find some collapsed caves near Squally Point. Right. Caves that were actually mentioned in the 2000 expedition by Bill Stikuak. He did say that there were these underwater caverns. They didn't actually explore them, though, I don't think. No, and that's... Yeah, that's right here. Yeah, because I have... Mm -hmm. Because they they showed the ones in the Monster Quest dock that were visible. Well, they showed ones that were caves, air quote. But they're not really really cracks. They were not a home for a 60-foot They're like cavettes. Yeah, (laughs) sure. (laughs) Um... But yeah, the yeah the collapsed caves and the possibility of them being deep enough into the side of the mountain mm-hmm. for something to have been back there potentially if there was anything to be discovered. I don't know. I thought another cool part about the Monster Quest um, expedition was when they found the diver cave. So he descended and he was almost at the layer of sediment and he was noticing. He actually, you see a brief um snippets of footage of him in his like whatever his underwater cam yeah and there's like these like depressions that are very circular they're very they're all the same size too i think there were several that he saw yeah and this was before he ended up mucking up all the sediment and getting a big cloud and there was zero visibility and blah 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 which was clearly from his fins and, right and, and then like, he, yeah they kept oh, trying to hype I it saw up something something's down here spurred stirring this up it's like yeah that something is you yeah. <laughs> um, that's sort of what happens when you're right off the bottom yeah exactly Anyway, but but, it, but it, they but that was interesting though because the thick layers of sediment they did have these um yeah these pronounced sort of depressions and in my sort of uh you know very um 
crude research, I did discover some worms and sea serpents and eels that do use um, sediment to hide in order to catch their prey. Right. Um, oof, the bobbit worm is one of them. Oh, that, that thing's was, freaky. Ugh. But it's salt water. Stuff of nightmares. That was in, in that's yeah. found in the Indian Ocean. That's right? kind of the, yeah, the tough part about the eel theory. But anyways, we'll get into that. Yeah, we're um, almost at the theory section. We definitely, here. yeah, there was one other guy we need to mention from Monster Quest, though, which was Professor Sander Collison. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, this is important for sure. It kind of is. So go for it. You, you, you break that down a little bit, and then we'll mm-hmm. tie it into some of these other um, accounts. So this guy is a wind and wave dynamics professor at UBC, and he has his own theory. So let me pull that up here. He basically has this wave dynamics theory that is, yeah, he calls it the peculiar wave patterns theory. So he argues that internal wave structures that develop in the layers of water that are due to different pressures and, te- or sorry, densities and temperatures can cause these rifts on the surface that appear to be a solid object but are actually the result of upward movement of water working against the grain of the surface wind. So anyways, these, um, these sorts of actions form anomalous single waves that are caused by the transfer of the energy from the lower layers of the water into the upper surface layers. So maybe there isn't actually wind, surface wind, but I feel like that's an element too, right? Because you get the ripple and it kind of looks like something's like yeah, spilling I mean, over top totally. of the Totally. I read object. a little bit further into some other oh, like a, like people that looked at that article mm-hmm. and th- that's, yeah, like that's definitely a part of it too. Like that can obviously add to the effect of it looking like something that's but then sure shouldn't be there yeah but then counter theory what if that's just a camouflage technique <laughs> right that, yeah and right? that's something that yeah we talked about that just the other day yeah i mean well f- first off like i'd like to just make reference to the ed fletcher photo uh, like in terms of this theory mm-hmm. because i mean that makes sense to me that there could be you know like yeah varying temperatures and depending on yeah potential wind pattern on the surface and maybe yeah there is this sort of singular very strange wave that because of these factors like you know gets churned up and it looks really strange and we have seen things like that like i have looked out into the lake from a, a vantage point there's a dog park here in Kelowna that that we've both been to before and it's you you're, you're, frequent you're a few often. hundred you know if you're a few hundred feet up above the lake mm-hmm. and you can see you know you can see a lot and you'll sometimes you'll look and be like that looks weird and people will look and be like that's the Okopogo and that's yeah. exactly what this guy is talking about I've even seen because that it's no- running... like when I'm at Knox Mountain just hiking and you see this sort of like what? totally yeah. and it looks like it's kind of like it's you'll you'll it's see going some against other the grain against the, the grain. other waves yeah and the other like the wind that you can see and it creates different effects on the water and then yes. there's just this weird thing running like incongruently through it and you're like what is that yeah but the thing but the problem with this theory the just glaring problem for me is that this doesn't account for calm water you know yeah. if it's i know there's temperature differences and things like that but if it's the middle of july and it's 35 degrees in Kelowna for like weeks at a time and you're out there on a calm beautiful summer day that's when a lot of people see these strange wave patterns I don't understand how that can necessarily get churned up in those circumstances. We'd maybe have to look into that uh, even further, but that's where it's like we're down the rabbit hole and that's where it's so hard when we're researching these subjects. It's like I ended up spending three hours trying to find prehistoric snakes yesterday. (laughs) But so I I think that that theory has a lot of credence Mm -hmm. to it in certain circumstances, but it doesn't. It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain everything. People see this stuff in calm water. Yeah. And that's weird. That's very, very weird to me. So anyways, there was that guy. Um, 
And then that kind of wraps up Monster Quest for me. Do you have anything else to add to that? No, not really. It, like, no. I think we should move on to theories. But I before so we do, I think we need to jump to our expert interview of the week. Yeah, let's get to the interview because we wanted to get a little bit more in-depth. I mean, we wanted well, just to just more of an to... expert opinion. Yeah, an expert opinion on some of the rumors about the lake. Mm-hmm. And one of those rumors is that... Or, well, ideas. Is that the Ogopogo lives in these caves, right? Yeah. caves so. and the possibility of even longer tunnels in the lake. So well, that's, yeah, exactly. Let's get to that interview right now. Let's roll that track. Hey, Dana, how's it going? Thank you so much for being here. Oh, hi, Andrew. Oh, it's going great. And thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Um, so before we get going here, um, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, I am a exploration geologist. I work primarily looking for uranium at the moment, and I graduated from like a local university, actually, UBC Okanagan. Nice. Perfect. Okay, well, you're obviously the right person to be talking to, and that's why we wanted to bring you on the program here. Um, we are looking for some more details about the lake, um, just because a lot of the theories that we've been getting into, it always comes back to the possibilities of caves and the depth of the lake and the depth of sediment in the lake and the type of rock and all kinds of things like this. So we really wanted to get a geologist's perspective. So before I even jump into any of these questions... I want to get some of, like, your background on this. Have you ever heard about any of these underground caves in the lake? I haven't heard about the caves. I've heard about the rumors that they're... I guess I heard that there might be. Mm-hmm. I never heard anything specific about them. It wasn't discussed in any of my courses or okay. anything like that. We worked primarily above water. Above water. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but you have kind of heard some rumors yeah. since then about po- the possibility of mm-hmm. that. So what sort of conditions does it take for, for a cave to form in a, in a lake like Lake Okanagan then? So in... With, like, underwater lakes... Often they formed before the water was there okay. or started before the water was there. In Lake Okanagan, we're working with primarily like sediments, sedimentary rocks, igneous rocks, and metamorphic rocks. Mm-hmm. So for those, you need a like an erosional cave. You need something to have started wearing down the rock, or if it's platonic, it could be a lava tube. Gotcha. Okay, so how does yeah. that work exactly then? So with lava tubes, it's usually in a basaltic rock, and the by Squally Point is actually part of the Lambley Creek basalts. Okay, that's is the, interesting. the bedrock there. Um, and what happens is, because lava is so fluid, it moves so quickly, the outside of the basalt is cooling a lot faster than the inside, so you, your lava is flowing through the tube, it's hardening as it goes, and then all the inside material moves out and leaves an empty tube behind. I see. Most of what we have here is field basalts, which okay. is different. It doesn't have quite the same flow. It doesn't flow like a stream. It flows all in one flat section. Okay. So it's not as likely, but depending on the local like ge- like geography at the time when the lava was flowing, it is possible that it could have happened. Okay. Fascinating. Because, I mean, there's obviously, we've watched a few documentaries and things where they do take a look at some of what they call caves at Squally Point, but they're not very deep down. They're pretty mm-hmm. much... You know, they send divers in and you can see the sunlight. It's not very yeah. deep. And we know that the lake is possibly even deeper than 800 feet in some in some locations. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know anything about how the lake has been mapped or if it's been fully mapped? There's been some seismic mapping and stuff done, which actually gives you a picture of like the lake surface and okay. then the, like, the layers beneath that. So it'll give you sediment layers and then two bedrock. Right. And there has been d- that done in sections. There's actually a section not long, not... F- 
far past Squally Point that that was done. Okay. And it's fairly shallow there, the lake. Really? Um, I can't remember the exact depths on it, but there right. it's definitely one of the shallower sections. The lake is fairly deep. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the deeper lakes in Canada, I yes, guess, right? Yes, it's quite deep. And just the product of being a rift lake, I suppose. We found some interesting yeah, similarities and... between... Uh, Okanagan Lake and Lake Baikal in Russia, even though it's way bigger, obviously, than Okanagan Lake, but both rift lakes, so super deep, which is really interesting to us. <laughs> Do you think that there's a possibility that, so that there could maybe even be some of these these tunnels possibly beneath the sediment? Oh, yeah, that's bottom? definitely very That's where possible. it would be? Okay. So, because we had the volcanic periods, and then we had the glaciations. Okay. We've had so much sediment put down and a lot of material taken away, which is part of why the lake is so deep and so heavily infilled. Right. It was like 800 meters of sediment, I think, or something crazy like that. Something ridiculous. The... Like, I think, well, I've got a number here. The bedrock below Okanagan Lake is about 640 meters below sea level, and the surface is like 300 meters above sea level. So you've got like 300 meters of wow. give and take in there crazy that's a that's a good chunk of space yeah it's massively dug out the glaciation made the valley huge and then a lot of material got that's left behind real, that's really cool so you're saying it is possible that there could be some underwater tunnels in the lake mm-hmm. and that it's definitely possible that there's even maybe some bigger caves than the ones that are visible right at squally point directly beneath the surface yep awesome it's possible fascinating i guess we'll finish this off by me asking you what is your take on the ogopogo I did come across something when I was um, looking into the caves, and I think that it came about from reading the land, which is a Englishized term for a term I can't say because I think it's <laughs> you and I yeah. can't pronounce it. And it's um, a lot of rock formations. There's rock formations that look like a serpentine monster oh, okay. near Squally Point. And Fascinating. So you're taking the geologist perspective. Yeah, it I could guess, be a rock, yeah. not the typical. It's, it's a log floating so I, I in the water. I think it came from an old, um, old legend that was based off of reading the land and the belief that a lot of ancient civilizations have that monsters and creatures at the start of the world got turned to stone. Fascinating. And that, that's what it came that's from. That's your take. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And if you're okay with it, we'll be reaching out to you again for other geological questions. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Awesome. Thanks, Dana. No worries. All right. Well, I think our very first ever interview went pretty well. I would say so myself. And yeah. that, was, that was awesome. That was great to get. Thanks, little, Dana. Yeah. Thank you so <laughs> we much, appreciate Dana. That. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she, I mean, she... Very eye-opening, hey? Yeah, the pos- it is possible that is. these caves could be pretty big mm-hmm. and that there could be extended tunnels, not only at the bottom of the lake, as, as deep I as I love how she plays feet. the rational scientist, hey? And yeah. <laughs> sticks to she her does. true geologist perspective. And I, I agree with that in a lot of, you know, obviously... Definitely, yeah. Reading the land is a I big can see part that. of Well, exactly, creation. and even just the idea of the Ogopogo being more of an allegory, right? Yeah. That type of thing, but... All right. Does not account for everything that we have heard. No, indeed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the idea of there being tunnels is fascinating to me. I want to yeah. send down some submergibles and try to find these tunnels and go in them and like let's go <laughs> let's see how far they go yeah. <laughs> you know there's i mean we've heard uh, rumors too like ideas that there could actually be a cleft underneath the city that runs all yeah, the way underneath out downtown to... underneath 
Rutland. Yeah, which is a long way away from the lake. That's kind of amazing. Which would that that give the Ogopogo a habitat that is much, much larger than was what is already a mm-hmm. massive body of water, potentially. Yeah. But I think we're ready to get into some Lots of our of hiding theories. Spots. Right. And, of course, one of my main theories does revolve around the caves. And... All right, let's hear it. All right, so, I mean, for me, I think that there's... It's important to make point that in order for a species to survive, like, if if this is an actual creature, Mm -hmm. if it reproduces with a partner... We looked into this with one of another, another in search, or sorry, not in search of another monster quest one for Lake Champlain and Champ, and they had a Mm -hmm. biologist on there talking about... On the other side of the continent. Yeah, on the other side. East side, St. Lawrence River. Right. That type of thing. And a sort of similar idea, fresh water and a monster in the lake. Mm -hmm. But they interviewed a biologist and basically, you know, you you need a population of 50, a minimum of 50. Is what she said. Is what she said to, and and even with that, there's going to be extensive inbreeding, obviously, and so it won't last as long. 500 is more of a number for actually, like, sustaining a population. But that doesn't account for asexual reproduction. Mm-hmm. Could this, could, could it, could there possibly be some sort of a, yeah, like a freshwater eel that, ex, that existed from the, you know, the megafauna mm-hmm. era that... And yeah, that just or some sort of like reptilian snake-like thing that just evolved. That just on its evolved own. to re- reproduce asexually, Perhaps. and maybe and maybe this thing because think about or, how think about yeah. how long things lived for back in the day. You know, like think about how even long like a giant land tortoise lives well, today. It's like over a hundred years, right? How long those um, sturgeons live? Like you know, oh yeah, over well easily, over hundred years, easily one hundred and fifty. Yeah, it's insane. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's sturgeon, and I'll mention that in a sec. I think that's kind of ridiculous. But the just the idea that that something could I think I think that it's definitely possible that something could have evolved to reproduce asexually, and maybe it does live in the sediment. Mm-hmm. I think a prime example of this whole like oh we thought it was extinct, but J.K. it's not is the coelacanth fish. Oh, and absolutely. <laughs> Is, that was found in 1938. There was two populations actually found. One off the coast of Sulawesi, Indonesia, and then one in the Comoros Islands off East Africa. So, this fish is cool. Apparently, they're very elusive deep-sea creatures, which, you know, that lends to the idea that, obviously, yeah, they're not meant to be found. They don't want to be found. They're not going to be found. Anyways, it would live in depths of up to 2,300 feet below surface. They can be huge, reaching 6.5 feet or more and weigh up to 200 pounds. Wow. So they can live up to 60 years. So obviously that's about the half a lifespan of the sturgeon. Yeah. But very interesting, right? Like we thought that was extinct for billions, well not billions, millions? Yeah, millions of years. That's wild. It's a very, it's it's a cool species too because it's a transitionary species between fish and land mammals. So what if the Okapogo or some sort of, you know... It, it was the same type of deal, and then it just evolved on its own. Right. And basically got cut off from the rest of the pond, and that was that. And now we might have our own little homegrown monster. Well, I mean... If the, you call it that. The amount I don't of, the amount it a monster. Of, no, I don't, no it's, it's just a cryptid creature. Right? It's a creature. It's not, it's not a monster, per se. It's like calling Frankenstein a monster. He's not a monster. He's just a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bunch of other um, ancient fish, though, that were thought to be extinct that were found, right? Like, here's one uh, called the hagfish, you know, uh, existed <laughs> oh, over 300 million years ago. And this thing looks like a worm. You know, this thing hmm. looks like a giant, thick, crazy-looking eel. And uh, this guy right there. Let's see. Oh. Pretty gnarly looking. Crazy. But it was found 
and we gotta post that <laughs> we'll, we'll post this link i mean yeah there's there's literally dozens and dozens and dozens of species that were thought to be extinct that have existed for tens if not hundreds of millions of years that have been found alive mm-hmm. if that isn't enough to kind Without of pique your curiosity that something everything. could still exist out there some people i don't know what will a lot of people argue that clona that okanagan lake in clona is not big enough but the sediment alone is 750 meters, just the sediment, before you even get to the water that at the is base of the lake. 2,460 feet. It's unbelievably massive. And I draw some uh, parallels between Okanagan Lake, for that reason, and Lake Baikal in Russia, mm-hmm. which is also sort of like a rift lake and super, super deep and has... Did we mention know, that Okanagan is a rift lake? I don't think I we don't did. I don't think we actually did. Shoot. We mentioned it's a glacial lake. We said it's a glacial lake, but there is a rift running through the middle. Right. And it is responsible for um, the deposition of different um, materials, like geolo- geologic materials. That's so right. there's different types of rocks on the west side of the lake versus the east side. And the east side is primarily, um, oh, it was plutonic and metamorphic. So that, right. like, well, Dana already, yeah, she got into Talked that. Talked about and, that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But so I mean, ultimately, for my, I don't think I actually, like, made a point there. I'm just kind of rambling on. But ultimately, if there's something that is 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 an actual physical creature living in the lake, mm-hmm. I think it's plausible that there's not a large population of them because maybe it reproduces asexually. Mm-hmm. And if it lives at the very bottom of the lake and is tough to find because it's so deep and maybe even burrows and lives in sediment and just kind of lives hmm. off of like microorganisms on the bottom, yes. that that makes sense for the non-threatening encounters. Right? That it's not aggressive. I actually have, yeah, some information about that type. Um, snake eel slash water serpent. Okay. Oh my God, I don't even want to try to pronounce this. It's off. Try it. Try off it. A... I want to hear it. Afkathidae? I don't even know. <laughs> but anyways, this is a family of snake eels. And most species are reportedly to be bottom dwellers. They hide in mud or sand to capture their prey of crustaceans and small fish. Okay. But some are, yeah, they're just herbivores, so they don't really do that. But for, for hiding, right? For self-defense. And that kind of, yeah, just the whole idea of the sediment, right? Yeah. Burrowing for camouflage. Like, yeah. if you don't want to be found... That's what a lot of animals do. They just dig their way well, into the sand. Well, and that ties into, into the... the whole wave dynamic thing. We, yeah. we talked about the right? idea Another that form maybe of camouflage. if something, sur- if, if this creature, you know, does obviously come to the surface sometimes, maybe it has, I mean, animals are really good at hiding. They, they're really good at that, right? Yeah. So if it can pick up it's kind on, of important it can them. pick up <laughs> on a, a wave pattern that is not normal, mm-hmm. maybe it knows that it can travel on that wave pattern. That's right? what it'll they did in Finding Nemo, right? You follow the current. So it, it can, can exist that. on the surface. It can do whatever it's doing up there, but right? you know, remain out of sight because... Do you it, not remember that from Finding Nemo? I do, I, of course. Sorry, we have to mention that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about marine life. You have to mention Finding Nemo, sure. Right. <laughs> Even though it's a fresh You follow the current. What's that current called again? That famous one? <laughs> the one Anyways. where, the, where the, the, the Australian surfer turtle takes them over. Yeah. I just did. It's amazing. But anyway... I, uh, yeah, so... So that's kind of like, okay, so we're getting into the cryptozoological argument, right? A little bit. Yep. And there's kind of two camps for this, I would say, and we're covering the first one right now, which would be the water serpent slash eel slash extinct species type thing. Totally. The other end of the spectrum for that argument is the, um, the dinosaur one, right? So the, the plesiosaur type species. Right. Um, out of the research I did, I, um... 
I feel like it's most likely that it would be an elasmosaurus. So that has a really thick, or sorry, a really long neck, about 76 vertebrae in its neck alone, reached about 13 meters. So that's 43 feet. That's very consistent with yep. the reports. And yeah, I feel like out of all, because there's basically two main lineages of plesiosaurs and they're, sorry, yeah, plesiosaurs, and they go into camps of pleosaurs and pleosauroids. Okay. And there was this guy that did an article, um, his last name's Williston, I don't have his first name on the top of my head, but anyways, he just, and there's a quote from him that says, after a prolonged study of the American specimens and descriptions of the plesiosaurs, I am of the opinion that no single species of the American plesiosaurs can be placed in any known European genus. So that, to me, speaks hmm. to the idea that there's a vast disparity between these continental varieties, right. which maybe there's more room for regional um, specialization and evolution. evolution. Right. Possibly. We'd have to dig deeper. Ooh, mind blown. <laughs> down the rabbit hole, down the rabbit yep. hole. Anyways. No, that's that's fascinating. Because, right? I mean, I looked into some of... Th- and that is a peer-reviewed article. And we right. will have the um, link to that as well. We're always trying to find the peer-reviewed articles. Where we can. It's kind of hard can. with some of the stories or some of the subjects is. we're into. <laughs> we you know, try. And I was... Yeah, like I looked into... Yeah, the idea that, like, yeah, reptiles. What was around here? You know, mm-hmm. like, what was there? And Yeah, did you come see, up with some... I came up with a few things, like, in terms of just North America in general, Mm -hmm. and I guess you could make the argument that some of these things that were definitely more southerly reptile species could have evolved and made their way further north, but I mean, there was modern, like, the Miocene period had a lot of alligator species in sort of in the U.S., like, in Texas, Louisiana, like, you know. Are we talking the days of the giant ground sloth? Because those were the days. Those were the days. And I wish they were here now. Kind of. Well... No, just for the sloths. <laughs> Not for everything else. I don't want the giant... You just well, want the sloths. the saber-toothed tigers and the furry rhinoceroses. I don't know about that. I can take it or leave it. Well, they're pretty cool. They are cool, but I don't want them hunting me. <laughs> I guess rhinoceros, they're... Are they vegetarian? Are they omnivore? I don't even know. I think they might be omnivore. The furry... They're omnivore. Anyway. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, no, there were definitely lots of alligator species. There were giant tortoises in North America. There were mastoid snakes were present in places like... You know, at the time, this, this was, like sorry, Central those weren't America around in North this... America. This were, that was actually Australia. But oh. yeah, alligators, tortoises, iguanas, mm-hmm. reptiles like that through the Miocene crocodile? period and sort of the more modern, yeah, crocodile. But Excuse nothing me. that big in our area. Like mm. nothing that big up in BC that I could find. But it's just a question of evolution, of micro, of a microcosm of evolution, like you talked about, whether or not something could exist. If you're existing, if you're, if you've survived, this is like something I mentioned to you yesterday, like the idea that it's obviously crazy for us to think now, we're sitting here in 2018, to think that something from, you know, the Pliocene period survived or whatever, or the mm-hmm. Jurassic period, obviously, like survived. That's mm-hmm. even further. That's so far back, right? It's insane. But is it that crazy to think that, say, something just before the megafauna epoch survived mm-hmm. into that epoch and then had to evolve to consume larger prey mm-hmm. or or even just, you know, whatever was and on the bottom of the lake? And then just the size and just... Yeah, just, you know, right? And then just, and then just kind of survived through the, through well, the so millennia. Did you have a specific example of that crazy... What was it? Was, it was something from Mexico or something? Yeah, or well, no, there, there was or? a, uh, this was just a few years ago, I think 2012 or something like that. There was the largest ever prehistoric snake discovered in a cave in Colombia. Mm-hmm. And so this snake is called Titanoboa. And it can, it basically, it was 44 feet 
long. And this is an estimated length. This isn't like the potential max length. 44 feet long and weighed up to 2,500 pounds. And judging by this full-scale model of it in the Natural History Museum, I think it is, it looks to be at least three feet wide. This thing is massive. And yeah, that's in a tropical jungle, but is it possible that some other reptile or something like a reptile could have existed this far north and adapted? Possibly. I don't know. Anything's possible. I would like to hope so. But that was a really cool find from a few years ago. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, it just... The sheer scale, size of these animals was just... We would be dead in... I wouldn't last 10 seconds. No. I would, I'd get picked up by a dragonfly and just, like, <laughs> flown away. It, like, it reminds me of the magic school bus when they get shrunk down. Or no, was that an episode of school bus? <laughs> Am I thinking of... Honey, they shrunk the kids. <laughs> I don't know. So what, what about you, though? Like, what's, what, what's, what's some of your theories? Well, for me, I'm kind of torn. I do give certain credit to Dr. Kalisal because, obviously, he is um, a credited expert in his neck of the woods. But yeah. at the same time, I feel like there is a little bit more than just waves. And I go there back and be. forth between both cryptozoological arguments the main thing for me is that I can't really find any examples of a giant eel. I can only find examples of things that um, are about 5 centimeters to 2.3 meters. Yeah. Which doesn't really make the cut unless we're talking spe- specialization and that type of thing. Which right. maybe it is. I don't know. Again, though, with the plesiosaur argument, a lot of the descriptions don't really match that. And I feel like, no, they don't. I feel like it moves more in a serpentine-like fashion. The description so, is that it, yeah, it slithers. Like Ed, Ed Fletcher said, it basically moved with like the a humps, serpent. Right? If it's a plesiosaur, it would have one hump and a really long neck. Well, here's and then a an tail. Ex- well, here's the thing with that Lake Cham- Champlain mm-hmm. with Champ. That is supposed to be a plesiosaur. Right. Like, that's what people believe people that that might of, be. The it is more believable is because six, it did get connected to um, the ocean. The ocean, right? Yeah. That's yeah right. The, the the water level was a lot higher, yeah. and both waterways, like there's two, there's an entrance and an exit right. into the ocean. And it was connected, and so maybe it's plausible that something could have worked. And they actually do. There is some conjecture that there is again these underwater channels or something. So that's another thing. Similar sort of thing. But the one thing about that that I thought was interesting is like, yeah, six to twenty-five feet is the uh, is the range of descriptions of Champ. Six to twenty-five. A potential plesiosaur. Hmm. So that's significantly smaller than the Ogopogo descriptions right up to 60 feet i'm yeah that's kind of funny they say that because that'll be a really small plesiosaur yeah that's just that's just the average sighting like that they're not saying that that's the size i of guess it's like you see it's kind of hard to judge the yeah, yeah. i know right but that, mm. that that's yeah that's but yeah eleven thousand years ago it was connected to the uh, to the atlantic and in, in lake champlain and that's obviously a big difference between that and lake okanagan it's sort of a different 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 size and different um background for sure yeah but there's, a, yeah, some interesting similarities. And the other, and the other thing about the, the search for Champ in Lake Champlain that made me think about Lake Okanagan was what one researcher did was they did, uh, like, echolocation. You yeah! Know, they, they did some oh, yeah. sonar, and they, and they actually picked up... Um, unknown. Unknown uh, echolocation... Uh, communication Communication. Mm-hmm. And, that uh, were similar to orcas, or, or, but not. Uh, sorry, am I similar am I, to am I referring to that correctly? Echolocation, or is it or like yeah, it's wh- like radar. Wh- Echolocation is radar. Right. So basically, just... like what whale, like 
Yeah. The, anyway. Where you like, send but, out a signal and then it bounces off something and back to you and that's how you know the distance from something. That's, oh, okay. That's what echolocation is. Is that what they were referring to? Like yeah. the communicate, like whale yeah. communication and they, stuff like it's that? It's the clicks. The clicks. Yeah. Anyway, but they picked the sound But she, she made the, you know, the metaphor, not the metaphor, the example that it is basically synonymous to what humans use as radar. Right. 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 When we're, when we send out a radar signal, we're sending out a signal that's bouncing in all directions and then it picks up and sends back what it bounces right. off of. Right. And she picked, they, they picked up this researcher, um, yeah, Sonar communication radar. between multiple creatures giving mm-hmm. off these frequencies. And it takes a complex brain to right? have these communication They're skills. They're smart probably. <laughs> There's nothing in Lake Champlain that Orcas can produce are, that. are smart. Very. So these things, if they haven't been found? So for me in Lake Okanagan with the Ogopogo, I think that would be a really cool study to do if we could mm-hmm. do some sort of... Um, yeah, troll the lake and send out these signals and see if we can get a response Mm -hmm. or at least measure the sound. And if there is any type of strange communication or strange sound, no, Mm -hmm. there's been, uh, that would be fascinating. Yeah. Maybe we should reach out to Bill and see if he's into that. Yeah, (laughs) Bill, if you're out there, but I think that would be a really cool thing to kind of like further the investigation for Ogopogo Mm because We don't know how they communicate, and the idea that there's multiples has come up over and they. over again. Mm-hmm. If it is a they, but the I, there's been so like I mean yeah, Daryl Ellis was the one that we made reference to, and uh, you know multiples following him, and there's some other stuff to corroborate that. Like I have a article here from nineteen. Where's Daryl Ellis? Basically, yeah, another Daily Colonist article where. These two ladies were hanging out on the beach, and the article says, a an account of juvenile Ogopogos cited mm-hmm. by Mrs. P. V. Royal and Mrs. W. A. A. Newton. Mm-hmm. The women saw three group, a, th- a three a group of three of young Ogopogos traveling in a pack. This is in connection to other accounts of multiple creatures cl- traveling together in the water around the same time. Hmm. And that's 1927, Daily Colonist article. So that's early, but there's been accounts of multiples. For a really long time. There was definitely a few I remember from the documentaries we watched. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the, the daughter and mother. <laughs> with the big poles in the water and they were right. talking about the... Uh... Yeah. But anyways, I think it's time to wrap up, uh, give some conclusions here. Yeah, and... I'm ready to give some conclusions. Mm-hmm. And I think I kind of already we already kind of did. Opinion, <laughs> but why yeah. don't you kind of wrap up your thoughts? My thoughts? I'm kind of just on the fence still. I yeah. do feel like there is substance to the sightings and the things that, especially the ones that we decided to highlight here on the show. Yeah. And I just, there's so much ambiguity. Like what if, what if there's a couple different things and people have seen different things? Cause like it has been described. There's been so much. Different like it, lengths, different sizes. Different colors ranging from emerald green to yeah. dark black, that type of thing. And maybe that's just a result of the light. I don't know. But I, I'm not going swimming in Okanagan Lake anytime soon. <laughs> no. Not just because I'm terrified of water, but just because, um, yeah, it's just a little too close to home. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. After yeah. you look into it a little, you're just like. Yeah, it sketches me out a little okay. bit too. <laughs> you know, I'm. Who's got a pool around this here? This is man? a totally out of left field theory. Yeah. And I'm not going to go in depth Let's with it, it at all. But Let's hear it. I feel like there's elements of this story, this Ogopogo, the encounters that you can draw parallels to Sasquatch encounters where mm. the Sasquatch... Are you Sasquatch, going interdimensional on us? I might be going interdimensional. Or <laughs> so just cryptid. I, I think know. that there's... 
there's connections between Sasquatch sightings and Ogopogo sightings in the sense that they're fleeting. There's never anything very there's no conclusive. Body. There's no body found anywhere. There's no real evidence of of you know, offspring or any mm-hmm. of these types of things. Yet these sightings just keep or happening. Or of just general, like, you'd think maybe they'd pick up a tool once in a while with Sasquatch or I don't know. Something, like, right? Very primitive, But obviously. these sightings I happen. Like use the word and they happen from credible, they happen with credible people mm-hmm. throughout the years. And I think that there's a possibility that maybe, and maybe this is why it became such a prominent legend for the Okanagan peoples throughout their history that this creature is more than just a physical, actual dinosaur that survives, that it's something that appears when it wants to, mm-hmm. and maybe Okanagan Lake is a source of some sort of interdimensionality, and mm-hmm. I think that's a, one of the sort of strange theories that ties into Sasquatch, too. But that's sort of my theory, I think. On the one hand, it could possibly be an eel or something that has evolved and lives in the sediment, and then way at the f- other far end, I'm sort of thinking that because of the way it's sighted, Maybe this yeah. is sort of a maybe we're 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 living in some sort of a hotspot where you can where there's creatures there, that cross yeah. over from different we need sides to look into from more the local other legends. side of the portal, so to speak. Exactly. Very interesting. I like that one. You like, like that one? Yeah, I like it a lot. <laughs> I think we need to dive into more local legends around here. Hey, I think so too. We're if open it, to anything, really. Oh, wait. We're not going to be the UFO nuts, but we're open to that. If anyone has a cool UFO sighting, like I'm down to hear that and share it with our other listeners. And, you know, but ultimately to, to wrap up this uh, Ogopogo episode, I, you know, I, I still think the Folden film is the most compelling evidence. It's really crazy to see such a large creature surface and submerge. The Ed Fletcher photographs are definitely up there as well. It looks like there's definitely a creature rising out of the water in those Mm -hmm. photographs. It does not look like just dark wave patterns to me. You guys got to look at that. It's definitely not a beaver. Or an some elk. people have said beaver and elk, and you gotta just laugh out loud at those. At some, like some of them, yeah, you can explain it away with that, but not all of them. No. But anyway, I guess we're ready to wrap this up. Yeah. So thank, thank episode you. Episode two. Episode two. Boom. She done. Legend thank- of Oak Bogo. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening, and definitely reach out to us and give us your take on the Okapogo. We want to hear it all. Yeah. And yeah, we have our social media available as well. Our Instagram is up and running. Our Facebook. Andrew, any comments? Yeah, just let us know what you think of this episode. Yeah. And if you have your theories, please send them to us into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can uh, connect with us on the website too, into the portal.com. Yeah. And like yeah. we said at the beginning, we are up on Google Play Music. Yep. Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, finally. I mean, we're still working on Spotify. We yeah. got to get some traction to be, we got to become famous before we can get on Spotify. Yeah. So we need everyone's help with that. Exactly. <laughs> Please give us your ratings, reviews, all those five stars really help get yeah, traction. We really that. appreciate all the, and we've had a ton of support so we far. Have. It's been awesome. Definitely. Shout out to, uh, what was it Sir John the Fourth or something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that comment made me really happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, thanks, John. Or was his name John or Dan? I think it was Dan. I think his real name was Dan, but his username was John. Anyways, thanks, bud. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you so much for listening to the second episode. Look, look forward to the blog post coming up as well as all of our show notes for this episode. Yeah, we'll have all the same resources that we referenced. Yep. And we'll be back again in a couple weeks with uh, episode three. And stay tuned for that. It's going to be a strange one. It's. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Until next time. Until next time on Into the Portal. <laughs>